All right, here at Meadowbrook Church, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. Are you sick of hearing me say that? I'm just going to say that forever till the end of time or until we change the vision statement at some point. Helping people take their next steps with Jesus. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, we are wanting to help you take those next steps closer to him and following in the ways of Jesus. And so we focus on this primarily in three ways, upwardly, inwardly, and outwardly. So we want to help you take your next steps upwardly in your relationship with him, growing in your knowledge of him, your connection with him, your communion with him. We want to help you take your next steps inwardly as he does his work in us, as he transforms us to make us more like Jesus, as he makes us more holy, as he heals us up, as he brings us into freedom, and then outwardly as we live it out with other people and as we engage with other people in our church, in the world around us, uh, how are we more like Jesus as we're doing that? So we have been in a series uh, unpacking that in this context that we have called Jesus and the Sinners, and we've been looking at different stories in the Gospels where Jesus encounters sin in people, and we're just exploring those stories and trying to figure out what does this teach us about Jesus and who Jesus is? What does this teach us about ourselves and our own sin as we wrestle with sin? And what does this teach us about when we see sin in other people and when we encounter sin uh, both in the church and outside the church, and how can we uh, encounter people like that in a Christ-like way as we walk through it? So there are five premises that have been guiding us through the series that we have seen played out over and over and over again in these stories. Uh, we'll keep repeating them as we go through, that Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways, that if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we actually have to follow the ways and teachings of Jesus. And so as followers of Jesus, what he does and how he lives and what he teaches is crucially important to us as we seek to follow after his example. We see in these stories that Jesus' engagement with sinners makes some religious people uncomfortable, that there are those who think Jesus is too soft on sin because he is being kind to the sinners. Uh, Jesus does not seem overly concerned that people think that about him. He's not actually soft on sin, but at the same time, he does demonstrate a lot of kindness and compassion in a lot of these stories to the different people he meets in their sin. That being said, Jesus also calls sin what it is and calls us away from him. He's not soft on sin. He's faithful to God's word. He is the only one that is without sin, and he has no problem calling sin what it is and calling us to repentance, calling us to find a better way. We also see that Jesus is both holy and merciful, and he doesn't compromise either one of those things, that he is perfectly holy, perfectly committed to scripture, perfectly committed to righteousness and what is good, and yet also is incredibly loving, incredibly merciful, incredibly compassionate, all at the same time. He never compromises either one of those things for the other. And then finally, Jesus meets people exactly where they are. Uh, He often doesn't let them stay where they are, whatever the encounter is. The person is almost always changed after an encounter with Jesus, but he meets them exactly where they are. He doesn't say you have to clean up to a certain point or you have to jump through these hoops. He meets people right where they are and then typically will will encounter them in such a way that changes them. We've also been looking at this one verse uh, over and over again as well, John 1.14. We have seen his Jesus glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we are seeing that in these stories as well, uh, that Jesus has, has no compromise of truth, and yet he is also full of grace at the exact same time. He never compromises the truth of God, and yet also never compromises the grace of God, and often meets people with both in these stories. So you may have seen uh, something like this before, uh, this sort of ink blot type picture. Do you remember what they're called? Does anyone know? 
A Rorschach, yeah, it's called a Rorschach test. And so a psychologist whose name was Rorschach came up with these things. And he was trying to figure out a way uh, to, to get people to talk about their feelings, to talk about what's going on inside them. And that's not always an easy thing to do. So he came up with this theory that if he could show people images that were literally just made by taking ink on a piece of paper, folding them in half and pulling them out, and he would ask people, what do you see in this ink blot? it would tell you something about where that person was at. And so if you were to look at this picture and say like, oh, well, it kind of looks like a bat, that would mean something like, well, you want to be Batman or something like that. I don't really get totally how it works, but the idea was you would look at, you know, seven or eight of these ink blots and you would say, well, this is kind of the picture that kind of jumps out at me as I see it. And the idea is that it would reveal something about what was going on inside you. And so if you saw a lot of kind of angry sort of themed pictures, then maybe there's some anger going on inside you. If you saw a lot of uh, fearful images, then maybe there was some fear going on inside of you. And so it was just kind of a way to hold a mirror up to people and try to get a sense of what's going on inside you, what's going on in your Soul, and is there something there that could be helpful for a psychologist as they're trying to help people uh, move towards health and wholeness? And so uh, I heard a comedian say once uh, as a joke, he said, who's this Rorschach guy? And why does he keep making pictures of my dad telling me he's disappointed with me? And I thought, that's an awesome line. And so there are some psychologists and counselors who swear by this thing. There are others who think it's kind of silly. Uh, and I'm not really interested in weighing on, in on that part of it because I'm not a psychologist or a counselor. But there is something about this exercise of uh, kind of we're going to hold up a mirror to a person and see what comes out through the exercise. And scripture can be that too sometimes. Scripture, uh, sometimes the way we're reading a scripture or interpreting a scripture can be a similar sort of thing where whatever's going on in us comes out and that's how we're reading that particular scripture. And so the Bible does say that the word of God is kind of like a mirror, like it, it holds something up to us and it shows us something about who we are and it shows us something about what we're, what we're up to and what we need to work on. But the story that we're going to look at today, I think can be kind of a bit of a Rorschach test in that I'm always interested in this one story, how people read it in so many different ways. And sometimes the way in which they're reading it is telling us something about what's going on in them more than about what the text actually says in itself. And that, I think, is probably unavoidable as we read the Bible. Uh, but we do want to just be aware of that, that sometimes we're, we're seeing things in the text that aren't there or we're reading extra things that are not a part of it. Uh, and let's just be aware that we might naturally do that so that we can just not put all of our hope in that interpretation, uh, but try and dig into God's word. What does it actually say as we're trying to figure out what it means? So we're going to read the story of Jesus cleansing the temple today. And we're actually going to read it in all four Gospels. And so we're starting in Matthew 21. Uh, it's a short little stint of each Gospel, but we're going to flip through. So we'll start in Matthew, and then we're going to work through it together. So Matthew 21, starting in verse 12, says this. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now flip forward a few pages into Mark's gospel. Flip ahead to Mark chapter 2, or sorry, Mark chapter 12. All right, and I lied. I meant Mark chapter 11. Apologies. 
Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 11, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, there's a few verses there where the part happens with the fig tree. Let's skip over those and jump down to verse 15. So he's going back into the city now. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. All right, now let's flip forward to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 19. Let's see how Luke reports on the story. Luke chapter 19, and we're starting in verse 45. Just a couple of verses here. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then finally, let's move to John's gospel. John has it in chapter 2. And this will be our last one. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. All right. So those are four different snapshots of the same story. And so each of the gospel writers, it's one of the few stories that shows up in all four gospels. And each of them generally tells the same story, maybe with a little bit of a different emphasis or a detail is noticed differently. Uh, and that's actually why I love the fact that we have four gospels. We have four different things and each of the gospel writers has a different personality. Each of the gospel writers is writing to a different audience. Each of the gospel writers is trying to... Uh, uh, emphasize things in a certain way. And so when you put them all together, you get this really rich picture, just like if you had, uh, you know, witnessed a car accident outside and you had four different witnesses, they might all notice something a little different about what happened. But when you put it all together, you get the full picture of everything. And so I wanted to, to touch on each one of them just because uh, each of them, again, maybe emphasizes a different part or adds a different detail to the story. But I wanted to look at all of them today because they all are telling essentially, of course, course, the same story. When I was in high school, I took a course on law, and I don't remember the details of the chapter on law we were reading, but in it, there is a picture from a, a piece of artwork of this story and of Jesus cleansing the temple, and I, I couldn't find the exact picture of it, but it was something along these lines where, uh, where Jesus is there, and he's got this furious look on his face, and he's got his whip you know, hand cocked back and he's about to bring it down on all these people who are cowering before him. And it's just this kind of very intense, very visual, very forceful scene. And I, that image always stuck with me. I couldn't find the exact one, but it looked a little bit something like that. And it's just interesting because when you read the four stories like that, uh, there's actually nothing in the text that describes his emotional state whatsoever. And there's nothing in the text that says he used the whip on human beings. 
And when we talk about this story, and we'll get into this a little bit today, there's a lot of speculation about what is it exactly that is provoking this reaction. And there's, there's you know, elaborate ideas of like, well, they were obviously, you know, probably overcharging for the animals or, or there were things going on where, um, where, you know, the money was just that people were getting rich and, and that's possible, but that's not actually in the text either. The text actually doesn't say anything about his emotional state. Uh, it doesn't say anything about the, the motivation for what was happening for the people who were doing the selling and the money changing. There's a lot that isn't said in the text that we end up filling in. And I'm just saying, let's be aware of when we're doing that. Because as you've heard me say many times, we always want to be really clear on what the Bible is really clear on. And if the Bible is less clear, we acknowledge that it's less clear. So is Jesus angry in this story? It's very likely that he is. But let's just not make a whole doctrine about it if the text doesn't actually say for sure that he was. Uh, because there's other things that could be explanations as well. And so we just want to have that awareness. Let's be really clear about what the text is really clear about. Uh, and let's be aware that we all, when we read the Bible, fill in the gaps. Because sometimes the Bible doesn't uh, tell us everything we would like to know. And so we tend to make speculations. And that's fine. Let's just make sure we're calling it that. And make sure that we're aware of that as we go through it. As I have seen people apply this passage of scripture to various things, there's a, a wide variety of ways that it gets used. And so uh, flip the tables is a bit of a common expression in the church world right now. Uh, and it just kind of depends on how you want to use it. And so I have heard it used in terms of we got to flip the tables on social justice issues, on, on racial inequality. We got to flip the tables on political issues. We uh, often, you know, conservative people will say we got to flip the table on liberal stuff. The liberals say we got to flip the table on conservative stuff. And it's become this picture that sometimes it is right for us to make a scene. And sometimes it is right for us to be dramatic. And sometimes it is right for us to be angry. And sometimes it is right for us to take a stand. And all of those things, I think, are absolutely true. That absolutely we need to be concerned about social inequality. Absolutely we should take a stand for racial equality. Absolutely we should uh, stand up to the government at times. Absolutely there should be things going on in our world that we should take a stand for. I, I believe all of that. I just think there's probably better scriptures to justify that than this particular passage. And I don't know that we get to take this passage and just kind of apply it to whatever's going on in the world that we just don't like or we're not in favor of. And we'll talk about that a bit as we go. So as we go through the story, I'm going to pull from the different Gospels that we've just read, um, just the, the different details that they give us about that story. So I want to start here in Mark's version. Mark 11, 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, so he sees what's going on. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And so this, I think, is just kind of an interesting point. I had a, an atheist friend when I first got saved who always tried to argue with me that Jesus wasn't that great because Jesus had thrown a temper tantrum at the temple, that he just was outraged in the moment and he just started throwing things around and hitting people with the whip. Um, and that's actually not what the scripture says. And this is, again, just kind of an interesting point that Jesus walks in, sees everything that's going on, I'm sure is just as bothered by it as he's going to be when he actually acts on it, but then he actually apparently says, you know what, it's late and I'm going to go sleep on this. So this is not a reaction in the moment. This is not something, and I, I like that, you know, yeah, I just like the detail of since it was already late, uh, and I know for myself, sometimes I just go like, you know what, I'm tired right now. I should probably stop talking and I should just, let's just, we'll wait on this. This will wait till tomorrow. So everything that's about to happen in the temple 
is not an emotional reaction in the moment. He's going away. He's sleeping on it. He's measuring it. Uh, he's planning it out. He knows what he's going to do. It's not, a, it's not a, an overreaction or an emotional reaction in the moment. And as Jesus goes into, he talks about the temple courts. And this is interesting as well, that in the temple at the time, in the temple of Jerusalem, uh, there is a temple. The temple's in the middle there. It's right in that middle piece. That's the temple itself. And then it was surrounded by these great walls, and there was all these different parts of it. The temple itself... Uh, only the Jewish people could approach and go into. And to go actually into the temple to do things, only the Jewish priests actually could do that. But there was an outer part called the court of the Gentiles. And that was for anybody who wasn't a Jewish person but was still seeking the Lord. They could come and worship there. They could come and pray there. And so the Jewish people alone were allowed access to the temple itself. But then there was an outer part where anybody could come. And so if you weren't Jewish, you were still welcome to come and approach the Lord. You were still welcome to come and pray. And so in the courtyard of the Gentiles is where this is happening. It's, it's happening just outside the temple that these animals are being sold and that money is being changed. And so the outer court was the place where uh, those who were not part of the, the bloodline of Israel but still knew the Lord or wanted to know the Lord, that was where they could meet the Lord. They were invited to come into the outer courts and they could come and pray there. And so that is there um, as, as just a, a detail that we'll come back to as we go through this. So as he sees it all, we'll jump to John's version now, John 2, 13 and 14. So in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so we know from the Old Testament that there was uh, in the Jewish law an elaborate system of sacrifices that needed to happen uh, for the devout. And so you would come to Jerusalem and then this would happen multiple times a year. Wherever you were at in the land, you would pilgrimage to Jerusalem and you would pilgrimage pilgrimage to the temple, and there would be animals there that you would uh, offer up a sacrifice. And because if you lived, you know, miles and miles and miles away, you don't want to bring a cow all the way along the road. Like, you don't want to have to worry about the doves that you brought and having to, to, to travel there. And so there were things that were set up in Jerusalem that when you were coming to offer your sacrifices, you could just buy one there. And, and you could buy one and then not have to, to travel all that distance and not have to worry about caring for it all that distance. And so that in itself is not a, a bad thing. That's, that's a, a nice thing. That's a convenient thing. Uh, and then the money changers are there as well. Part of what the law said was that everyone who came to sacrifice uh, had to pay a, a donation. And, and it wasn't really a donation because it was in the law. But you had to make a contribution to the temple. And it just made... The, the temple able to be kept up. And so there were just expenses to the temple and uh, expenses to covering everything. And so you would come to offer your sacrifice. Uh, you would give your financial contribution. But because the law said it had to be in, in shekels, in Jewish money, and because the Romans run the world and everything at the time is in Roman money, you weren't allowed to give Roman money for your donation to the temple. So you had to have somebody there who was going to change it from Roman money into the Jewish shekels so that you could donate it and, and be faithful to what the law said about how that donation should happen. So that's what's going on here. So there are, there is worship going on, there is sacrifice going on, the temple is there, uh, and it needs to be maintained. And so the Jewish people would come from all over the land, um, because this is happening around Passover, that's why they're traveling to Jerusalem. It's Passover time, that was one of the times where you would come, and you would make your sacrifices, and you would make your donation. And so these people are there in order to meet that need, that as you are trying to be faithful to the Lord, we will do this, we will 
will offer this service, that we will sell you the cows and things so that you can just uh, have that convenience of it. We'll change your money for you so that you can make your donation in the Jewish format that the law requires. And so all of that is going on. And again, that in itself, I think, is, is not on its own a bad thing. Uh, but that is why it is happening. And so in John's version, he mentions there's cattle and there's sheep and there's doves. Uh, the other gospel versions really emphasize the doves in particular, that, that Matthew and Luke actually, or Matthew and Mark only mention the doves. It doesn't mention anything else. And so what Leviticus 5.7 said in the law was that anyone who cannot afford a lamb for sacrifice is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for their sin, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So in that sacrificial system, God acknowledges that there are going to be poor among us who can't afford a lamp and so the doves were a, a cheaper way to go and and so that was an option for you if you couldn't afford a lamb and so the doves are mentioned multiple times alone which we'll come back to as we go and so jesus sees that all of this is going on and we don't really know much more than that so kind of the standard way we interpret this passage is that these people are obviously taking advantage of people Right? They are charging an exorbitant rate for the animals, or as they're exchanging the money, they're, they're kind of dinging you as they go. Right, You know that if you go to exchange money into American currency at the bank, it's going to be a certain rate. If you do it at the airport, it's going to be a very different rate, because right? they know you need that right then. And so that's sort of been the standard idea of understanding this passage. That could very well be. It just doesn't actually say that specifically. That, that is not specifically in the text. And so let's just, again, acknowledge that that we're maybe filling in the gaps a little bit on what exactly is going on. Back to John's version, John 2.15. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And so I think it's really clear from the passage that the whip is being used on the animals, right? It's not, he's not cracking it on the head of the people who are doing the selling. It says that he drove them out, both the sheep and the cattle. And they go, that makes sense, right? You're trying to get the animals out of here. And then he does flip the tables. He scatters the money. So he's obviously not happy about what is going on. So again, it doesn't say anything in any of the versions that Jesus is angry as he's doing it. Uh, it doesn't say he's calm as he's doing it either. He's obviously provoked. There's obviously a response that comes. We shouldn't have any problem imagining Jesus getting angry because Jesus is one with the Father, and, and the Father at times in Scripture gets angry. Jesus at times in the Gospels gets angry. And so that shouldn't be a problem in and of itself. But again, let's just acknowledge that the text doesn't say that exclusively. Uh, what if Jesus was just saying like a cop, like, all right, everyone out of here, move along, nothing to see here, everybody get out. What if it was a very calm reaction? And that, of course, isn't in the text either. But that is my point. Uh, we can sometimes read something into it that isn't exclusively there and we shouldn't make whole doctrines out of it where some people would look at this story and say i have the right to get angry because jesus got angry in the temple and it's like there's better biblical verses you want to lean on if you want to take a stand for righteous anger um, i think jesus was probably angry in this story and and that shouldn't be a struggle to think about at all uh, but again where the text isn't clear we shouldn't build doctrines around that based on this particular story and so jesus clears the temple he uses the whip to drive the animal 
animals out. He turns over the tables. He says, this is stopping now, right? Whatever is going on here, this is over. Uh, this isn't going to be happening anymore. And then Mark eleven seventeen says, as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so I find that interesting too, because in a lot of the movies, uh, when they show this scene, Jesus is screaming that line at people angrily, right? He is letting them have it as he drives them all out. But it's saying as he taught them, he said that, that Jesus has actually driven everybody out and then he's moved into teaching mode, which is why he was going there in the first place. And so there's this moment, there's this reaction, there's this driving out that happens, and then he sits down with them and says, all right, let's talk about what just happened there. This is what the Bible says. This house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. And he's actually quoting two scriptures there um, that are, are important. And so the first one is from Isaiah uh, 56, 6 to 7. This is a prophetic word about what is coming. And it says, The foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." Now, that might not mean much to us, but for Jewish people hearing that from Isaiah, you know, thousands of years ago, that would have been a, a shocking idea because God was the God of Israel, right? God had revealed himself to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. The prophets were prophets of Israel. The Messiah was going to come out of Israel. Salvation was going to come out of the world to Israel. And then Isaiah says by the Holy Spirit, but yes, but a time will come. Even those outside of Israel will come to the Lord. That God is not interested in just one nation. He is interested in everybody. He is interested in bringing the whole planet back to himself. So a time will come. The Jewish people knew the Lord, but the Gentiles too. That there will be those amongst the Gentiles who bind themselves to the Lord, who, who love his name, who will come and worship him. And God says, I will accept them. I will accept their worship. I will accept all of it. For my house will be called a house of prayer, not for one nation, but for all nations. God's after the planet. He is at work in that way for everybody. And so that's important to note as well, that as Isaiah is prophesying that and Jesus is quoting it, Jesus is saying this house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. I think it's really important to note that this story is primarily about a religious cleansing that's happening. And it often gets used to, to say, well, let's take a stand against a political thing or whatever. Uh, let's take a stand against something that's going on in our society. But this story that we're reading is a religious cleansing. The house of God is being cleansed here. That is where the stand is being made. And so I don't know that we get to just take it again and apply it just to anything going on in the world that we don't like and say that's, that's where I'm going to be Christ-like and start flipping tables because Jesus isn't flipping tables out in the Jerusalem marketplace and he's not flipping tables in Pilate's house or in Herod's house. Like this is a religious cleansing that's happening. Jesus is obviously upset that something is going on in the house of God that shouldn't be happening. There's something going on here that is not good. So the first verse that he quotes is from Isaiah. The second one is from Jeremiah, Jeremiah verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 9 to 11. 
He's rebuking the people of Israel, Jeremiah, by the Holy Spirit. says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And that last line is a who, uh. So Israel, when Jeremiah is talking to them, again, generations before Jesus, is not in a good place. There's all sorts of bad stuff going on. And Jeremiah is rebuking them, saying, like, you're going out and you're living your sinful life, and then you're coming into my house and you're thinking, hey, I'm good. Hey, we're safe here, right? And, and he's saying, no, you don't live that life out there and then come in here and pretend and play games. And so Jeremiah rebukes them, saying, you've made the temple a den of robbers. And Jesus is saying to this crowd, that's exactly what's happening right now. And so it's obviously not just about uh, the selling that is going on. Like that is, is what he's frustrated with or angry about in the moment. The selling is there. But by tying it into Jeremiah, there is something there where uh, the marketplace selling that's going on in the temple is a symptom of bigger problems. So in Jeremiah's day, there was all this obvious sin and idol worship going on, and they were coming into the temple and just pretending like, hey, we're good with the Lord because we're at the temple and we're safe here. And so there was lots of stuff going on, obviously, in Jesus' time, in the Pharisees and in the religious systems that also wasn't good. There was other stuff that was going on as well. Jesus says, you've made this place a den of robbers. And so we don't, again, know exactly what was going on that made him say that this marketplace selling going on in the temple was robbery. And that's where I think in maybe reasonably perhaps filling in the gaps, you say, well, perhaps they were taking advantage of people. Perhaps they were, you know, taking advantage in the, the money changing and taking more money than they should. Uh, perhaps it's not a literal robbery at all, but Jesus is just tying it into this, that the very fact that you're selling things in the house of God is testament to a bigger problem of where your hearts are at in your devotion to the Lord. Uh, and so we, we can consider that piece as well. Um, as we go back to, to John's version, what did John say in John 2.16? Uh, to those who sold the doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So the other three gospels have this piece about uh, the den of robbers and the house of prayer. Uh, John notices a different detail in his rebuke. Uh, the rebuke of Jesus through him is stop turning my father's house into a market. Uh, and then the doves there are mentioned again and, and again. So the doves were there for the poor people. And that gets emphasized in three out of the four stories. That the doves are there uh, and, and they're offered there for the poor people. And so some have read that and speculated there is something here, it seems, where perhaps the poor are being taken advantage of. Uh, and, and again, I don't think it's explicitly there. I think that is probably a reasonable thing to conclude, that the fact that they mentioned the doves over and over again through the telling of the story means there's something specifically about the doves being sold that Jesus doesn't like, because he doesn't get as upset about the cattle in each of the stories or the sheep in each of the stories, but there's something about the doves coming up. And so if you are a poor person and, and you want to be faithful to the Lord and you want to be faithful to the sacrifice, you don't really have any choice but to kind of pay whatever they're saying you got to pay as you get there. And so perhaps there is a, an advantage being taken of, of them. Uh, and then that is why the doves show up over and over again in the story. But Jesus also is, again, the primary reason he seems upset is that it's happening in his father's house, right? This house is to be a house of prayer. 
Why are you turning my father's house into a marketplace? So it's also fully possible that Jesus would have been at peace with what was going on if it was just outside. Like if it was happening in an actual marketplace and not this place that was this place of prayer, this place that was supposed to be holy and revered, this place where the Gentiles could even come in and encounter God, this place that you were supposed to come and and just come worshipfully and come uh, just reverently and come honoring the name of the Lord. And there's all these parts of the Old Testament that talk about the temple as that's the place where the name of the Lord resides. Like the, the, the power and the presence of God is here. And so in all four Gospels, Jesus is upset that this is happening in the house of God. And so maybe if they were doing it 100 yards down the road, he's not upset. Maybe. Uh, maybe that's, that's okay. But he is upset that it's happening inside the house of God. And, and so when we're trying to figure out kind of, you know, why is Jesus so upset, it's not made crystal clear. Uh, but in trying to, to kind of put all these pieces together, uh, I think we can say this for sure, that the poor are potentially being taken advantage of. I don't think it's explicit, but I think it's reasonable to say that the temple has turned into a marketplace the house of god is a place where money is happening and then buying and selling prayer is being replaced by prophets and and i think that is a big piece of it this is supposed to be a place where prayer is happening and you guys are are wheeling and dealing in that moment and then this is happening specifically where the gentiles seek god that the place where if i am not a jewish person and i am curious about the lord and someone says well you go to the temple and you can uh go to the temple courts and I go, okay, well, I don't know the Lord, uh, but I'm, I'm curious, I'm hungry, and I'm going to go in, and I'm going to go into the courts that the first thing I'm going to see is all these people buying and selling in this place that's, that is a place where prayer is supposed to be happening, a place where worship is supposed to be happening, a place where sacrifice is supposed to be happening. Jesus says, you've turned my father's house into a marketplace. And there's nothing wrong with marketplaces, right? Marketplaces have to happen. But Jesus says, not in my father's house, not where prayer is supposed to be happening, not where worship is supposed to be happening. That can't be happening here. And so he drives them all out and sends them all outside. John wraps up in uh, John 2, 17. His disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me. That was something that was prophesied about the Messiah. It comes to us from Psalm 69. Uh, and with the Psalms and these Old Testament pieces, there's an element at play uh, that theologians call dual fulfillment, which means it had a fulfillment for David or whoever was speaking at the time, had a fulfillment for Isaiah in the moment, and then also had a second, a dual fulfillment in Jesus. And so David writes this about uh, a thousand years before Jesus shows up in Psalm 69. Uh, for I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. So there's an element of that that's true for David in the moment, and it is also pointing ahead to Jesus. And doesn't that just sound like the life that Jesus lived? That the life that Jesus lived on this earth was a life of scorn, and, and he was attacked, and he was insulted. His own family didn't know what to do with him, uh, and yet he was zealous for the house of God. He was zealous for the name of the Lord. He was zealous to do what the Father wanted him to do, and he was insulted uh, all the time because of it. And so the way of Jesus sometimes is to walk that path, to walk that path of, of difficulty and, and being insulted. That's part of it sometimes. That's part of what it means to take up our cross and 
and to follow after him. And we don't necessarily have a zeal for the house of the Lord in quite the same way, because uh, for us, it's not about a building anymore, and it's not even about a ministry anymore, because the Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's made his home in us. And so what makes church powerful is not this specific geographical location. What makes church powerful is that we're all here together, right? We are all filled with the Spirit. We use our gifts to bless one another, encourage one another, walk with one another in Jesus as we walk this out. And so as Jesus cleanses the temple in this story, what are some things that we can take away from it? Well, first of all, again, it's a religious cleansing that's happening. And I've said that a few times. But his problem is what's going on in God's house in that moment. So I don't think we generally in Scripture get to just take Scriptures and apply it to anything else that we feel like applying it to. And so where this often, again, uh, as I said at the beginning, gets applied to, to justice issues and racial issues and political issues, and we got to flip the table on this and flip the table on that, again, I don't know that that's the right use of this passage. I don't think in general we, we take Scripture completely out of its context and just apply it to whatever we feel like. And so that's an easy thing to do with this one because Jesus seems to be angry in it. And when we're angry and when we want to take a stand and when we want to make a scene and when we want to stand up for what is right, it can be easy to point to this story and say, that's my justification to do it. And to that, I would say there is biblical justification to do that. I just don't think this is the story for it. Jesus is upset, not over politics, not over social stuff or, or racial stuff that's going on in the society. Jesus is upset that something's going on in the house of God. Like that, that is what's driving him in this moment. There is something going on that isn't right in his mind. And so as we are, are seeing that nonetheless, where we are inspired by Jesus in this story is that he saw something that wasn't right and he did speak up. And that is our job as well. That if we see something that isn't right, we should speak up. And, and again, I don't think we can take that too far uh, in terms of this story and applying it to lots of different things. But as we've talked about in here, we've seen lots of stories uh, where Jesus meets sinners in their sin with a lot of grace and a lot of compassion and a lot of patience. Uh, this actually isn't one of those stories. This is a story where Jesus meets them and just confronts them instantly and boldly with truth. And so uh, that is part of our job as followers of Jesus is to speak the truth. Always good to remember as well. Come on up, worship team, when we're just about done. Good to remember as we follow after Jesus' example that he's perfect and we're not. His anger is perfect, and, and my anger is not. And when I'm angry, I am often quite sure that I'm perfect and I am right in that moment. And often in retrospect, I go like, yeah, there's a lot of Chris in that anger. That was not all the pure righteous anger of the Lord. There was a lot of me mixed up in there. And so anger in itself is not a sin at all. The emotion of anger is not a sin. God gets angry. God acts on that anger. There's times in the Gospels Jesus gets angry. Jesus acts in that anger. We are, however, warned in Scripture, in your anger, do not sin. Which to me says, in our anger, it's easy to sin. Like, and I think in my life experience, that's very, very true. It's very easy in our anger to, to say things that we shouldn't have or to hurt people. It's very easy in our anger to, to fall into sin, and that's why we're warned. Hey, anger is anger. You can't control it. If you're feeling it, you're feeling it. Uh, anger can be a very godly emotion, and, and anger at times can lead us to do very ungodly things, and then we step outside of what we should. And so to just be aware uh, that if I am angry enough at something that I want to flip a table and I want to, you know, to, to take a stand and, and do whatever, just to be aware that, okay, Jesus is perfect when he does it. 
and I'm not perfect in my anger. Uh, it's interesting in this story, Jesus doesn't say to his apostles, let's all go and flip over tables together. He does that himself. Uh, and he doesn't necessarily call us to do that anywhere else either. And so just be aware as we're looking at scripture and, and trying to be Christ-like and trying to follow his example, uh, just to approach that with some humility, right? When I'm angry, I need some humility. Because as pure as I think my anger is in that moment, it, it might not be. And there's a good chance, history has told me there's a good chance that my anger uh, has a little bit of my own flesh, my own issues mixed up in there. And so as we're trying to figure out, okay, what am I feeling? What is a godly way to express that anger? What is a godly way to live out my convictions? Let's make sure we're doing it with some humility and, and seeking some counsel and, and figuring it out with others so that we can walk that out in a way that really is good and healthy. Here at Meadowbrook, we are here helping people take their next steps with Jesus. And, and as always, we focus on that upwardly in our walk, our relationship with him. Inwardly, as he does his work in us to transform us and heal us and free us. And then outwardly, as we engage with other people. So I, I always say, I don't want to give you all the answers of what exactly to do for the main reason that I want you to seek the Lord yourself with this. And, and you know where you're at, and he knows where you're at. And so in terms of your next steps, you can pray through that over the next uh, couple of days and, and just ask, Lord, what are my next steps here? But just to kind of get you going in that conversation, uh, upwardly, next steps, where is your zeal for the Lord at? Are you zealous for the name of the Lord? Are you zealous to walk in the way of Jesus? Are you zealous for his truth, for his word? Uh, and I'm not saying you have to go around yelling at everybody in your zeal or, or kicking over things in your office in your zeal, but I'm just talking about in your heart, in your attitude, are you passionate for the things of God? And where is that passion showing itself? And if that passion is missing, and, and sometimes there's seasons in life where, where we feel more passionate than others, and sometimes we feel very full of the life of God, sometimes we feel more empty, but in terms of your devotion to the Lord, where is that showing up? And if you're in a season where it's lacking, where can you step into that then? And, and sometimes we go through seasons of dryness and, and wilderness time uh, because God doesn't want us depending just on what it feels like. Will we follow him no matter what it feels like? Will we dig into the word even if it doesn't feel super fruitful and exciting? Will we worship him even if our hearts aren't really super excited on a particular Sunday morning? Will you do it anyway because it's him and because he's worthy of our worship, because he's worthy of our prayer, because he's worthy of us pressing into him? Where is our zeal showing up. In terms of the inward peace where we're looking at our, our sin and our brokenness and, and asking him to heal us and transform us, uh, what would the equivalent be if Jesus were to flip over the tables in your life, in your soul, in your mind, in your heart, in your habits, in your attitudes, what would that be for you? And that's something just to bring to the Lord. Lord, what needs cleansing in my life? Where, where is something where you are drawing my attention to something? Uh, you know, Jesus doesn't halfway cleanse the temple, right? He says, this has to be cleaned up now. We are, we are changing this now. This behavior needs to stop now. And so to just present yourself to the Lord and say, all right, Lord, is there anything in me? Is there any area where I need that, that same level of, of removal, of, of change, of, of a new way forward? What does that look like for me? And then outwardly, where Jesus says in this story, hey, there's something going on here that, that I need to speak up about. Is there anywhere around us where we need to do the same thing? 
Is there anywhere where we need to speak the truth, remembering grace as we do it, not just blunt, brutal, harsh truth, but truth combined with love, combined with grace? Is there anywhere where I need to speak that to somebody? Is there anywhere where I need somebody to speak that to me? Is there anywhere where I need to be open to that conversation as well? And there may be many other applications of that, but that's just to get you going. So let's just close our eyes here for a moment and just settle our hearts before the Lord in his presence, just in the safety of knowing he is always good and that he loves us. And we're just going to ask, Holy Spirit, speak. Just bring something to mind now. For some, it might be a, an inner voice. For some, it might be a picture. For some, it might just be a sense of something that you just kind of know. It might be a thought that comes to mind. But Holy Spirit, speak. Speak what's a next step for me in applying your word as your spirit makes that clear to us. Where do I go from here, Holy Spirit? Lord, as you begin to show us what we do with this and, and not just in this moment, Lord, but in the next days to come. I just pray, Father, your strength to live it out, your strength to be faithful, to, to hear the truth of your word and to hear clearly what you are calling us to do with it. Thank you, Lord, that we don't figure out your word by ourselves, that actually the Bible says it's impossible to figure out the word by ourselves. Your spirit has to open our eyes and give us understanding. And so give us that understanding, Lord, in the days to come and give us the strength to walk faithfully before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me, please, as we worship and get ready to close today?